you know, pe- people who know history a little bit, they, they bring up Stalin, of course. You know, like, ah, Stalin was from Georgia, which is not the, not the best thing to hear, uh, obviously. <laughs> you know, it's like, ah, oh, you're from Austria. Well, Hitler was from Austria. <laughs> Patricia Rosvora, and you're listening to the very first episode of Kitchen Conversations. This podcast aims to open up the mysterious and vague Eastern Bloc to a broader international audience. Each episode is devoted to one artist, exploring their relation, interest and urgency to create within the framework of the post-Soviet sphere. Today I'm speaking to Misha Antadze, a documentary film director born in 1993 in Tbilisi, Georgia. He studied film and video at Cal Arts in Los Angeles. After graduating, he worked as an editor and a translator before eventually moving back to Georgia in 2017, where he shot The Harvest. He's currently a researcher at Master of Film, Artistic Research in and Through Cinema at the Netherlands Film Academy. Today we will mainly talk about Misha's latest work, the Harvest, from 2018, that sets in Kakheti, eastern Georgia. 20 years ago, people of Georgia suffered daily power outages. Today, their country engages in a highly technological form of capitalism. Kakheti, a region famous for its mesmerizing nature and wine, is also the third largest exporter of Bitcoin in the world. The Harvest is a poetic exploration of the relationship between nature, technology, and the changing landscape. Please welcome Misha Antadze. For the beginning, I wanted to start asking you a very broad and open question. Sure. Uh, I know that you've been living in LA, in the US, also yes. now living here, right. uh, maybe perhaps you lived somewhere else, I don't know. No, this is it. Alright, uh, yeah, I'm curious about uh, some assumptions or misconceptions about Georgia, which you've encountered. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, the biggest thing is, is that people don't know of its existence, right? Uh, having to specify like that I'm not from the state of Georgia, which is ridiculous at this point. It's uh, interesting, just uh, before coming to you, I uh, googled Georgia, just to know how many people live there. It was all about and the, the state. first thing was like the, the states and the yeah. US coming up, and the second only the country. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, so that, that happens a lot. Uh, the second biggest misconception is this kind of a association with Russia, right? Which I'm sure a lot of uh, post-Soviet countries experience, but uh, it it's kind of especially painful because of the imperial relationship that Russia had with Georgia, and you know, like basically two centuries, three centuries of occupation. Uh, and the fact that uh, the cultures are not related, you know, like uh, 
it's not not a Slavic country, uh, you know. So it's ethnically different. It's culturally different. Linguistically, it's very different. Uh, so you know, like those 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 assumptions get uh, very bothersome very quickly, and even today, even like in Europe. Uh, sometimes you get this question like, oh, Georgia in Russia, you know, you're always like a bit startled by that. <laughs> you know, pe people who know history a little bit, they, they bring up Stalin, of course, you know, like, ah, Stalin was from Georgia, which is not the, not the best thing to hear, uh, obviously. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, you're from Austria. Well, Hitler was from Austria. <laughs> it's yeah, like, no I one does I think this would that. never happen, huh? Yeah, of course not. No. Austria, no. <laughs> I didn't know Stalin was from Georgia. Yes. Would you consider yourself as a documentary filmmaker? Uh, yes, uh, I I do definitely, but I also think that uh, the this kind of uh, genre or designation has been hijacked a lot by journalism and reportage. Uh, most of the things that you see labeled as documentary are usually not not coming from the cinema tradition. And I, 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 I think it's very important to distinguish those two. Um, I mean, those films have a lot of value, and also entertainment value, and informational value, didactic value, but it, it's still a very very different branch that they're coming from and you know like I, I i think of myself first and foremost as a filmmaker um i've been making documentaries mostly but you know i'm also like moving a bit towards fiction uh i also received a very experimental film education for my bachelor's uh, and i really I'm trying not to distinguish it all that much. You know, I'm, I'm a filmmaker. Uh, I think cinema is a great tool for learning about the world. I mean, that's what really fascinates me, looking at the world. Actually, there's a... Man, I think I lent someone that book, but... Uh, yeah, it's something that my former uh, teacher, Tom Anderson, wrote about, which is like um, people very often co uh, confuse truth with factuality. And uh, I, I think at least the kind of cinema that I make, uh, it, it's much more about uh, searching for truth and not factuality. And again, as he said, factuality is not something you can achieve with film. You know, you frame, you cut, uh, you do, you basically make these kind of decisions which, which are at the most basic level constantly about including something or excluding something. So, so you will never really achieve something factual. And I think that's another difference between the kind of films that I make and a lot of uh, filmmakers, documentary filmmakers that I like, that I like make and... Uh, what is referred to as documentary kind of in the popular discourse. Uh, 
which is, I think, those kinds of films, it's, it's always the same choice, what you include, what you exclude, but uh, there's a kind of a pretense with those films that they somehow create a full picture, uh, which I don't think is really achievable. So this movie, The Harvest, you filmed after uh, you came back to Georgia? Yeah, after I came back to Georgia, before I came to the film academy in the Netherlands. And how long did you live in LA? Uh, seven years, basically. Wow, that's how long I live here. Oh, that's so, so crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's a long time. time. Yeah. Was like the topic of the harvest somehow informed by your uh, experiences of living in the US or? No, I don't think so. I really don't think so. I, I, I think what uh, really drove the film was just uh, curiosity. It, it had a funny start. It was a friend of mine in a bar who told me like, oh, people are like mining uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency in Gacheti, which I didn't really believe. Um, and I had some friends in that region or with connections in that region. So I kind of went to see for myself. And then like the movie really started to form. Um, I actually, I even remember like, I even wrote about it to someone else, um, someone that I know who's an artist who's really interested in the digital world, uh, never really got a reply from him. So I thought like, maybe I'll make the movie myself. And they thought it would be a short in the beginning, but then it really kind of expanded. Yeah. How do I pronounce it? Cajeti. Cajeti. Yeah. You knew something about it before, or that was your first encounter? Well, I, I mean, I really think there's this kind of... It, it, it holds a place in, in, in the Georgian imagination, so to speak, as a place of agriculture, a place of wine, you know, where we associate, like, um, high-quality products, uh, produce with Gajeti. Uh, not necessarily with technology. Obviously, it wasn't my first time being there, but I've also, I can't really claim any other kind of a connection besides curiosity. In the film, we see the landscape really like merging the technology with the nature. Yeah. And then this kind of randomly popping up uh, <laughs> yeah, architectural elements. Yeah. Uh, is it something which you observe in the whole country or is it specific to this region or did it change throughout this yeah, 30 years now? I think I think it's all of that. I mean, I, obviously there's been a lot of change uh, and I think it's also a result for, for the uh, just kind of like the economic desperation that everyone went through uh, after the fall of communism. And trying to latch on to ways to be entrepreneurial, so to speak, or make money. And uh, it's not always easy. People aren't always successful with that. So th there's a lot of different things that people have been trying. Uh, on, on the other hand, it's also, um, there's this kind of a, a misconception about rural life that it's, um, devoid of technology, that it's just, you know, cows in the field. Um, and actually, when, when you go there and you look at things, you realize 
how much technology is connected with the rural landscape. And there's much more of it in uh, rural places than in urban places. because I, I, that was one thing that I kind of realized when making the harvest is that technology comes from uh, agriculture or it comes from at least um, making uh, labor easier and a lot of the tools that we have now really resemble the tools that have existed for thousands of years. And it was just really, really strange to see uh, that kind of come together in the same landscape. Mm, yeah, I think the the scene of uh, milking the cow, no? Yeah, yeah. It's like yeah. things standing for that. <laughs> do the people who uh, who you filmed, do they know what the what cryptocurrency is or data mining? Yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah, they do and they they understand it quite well. Uh, again, I think it was one of those kind of assumptions that people have about rural life that like, oh, you know, like they just latched on to something that they don't quite understand, uh, but they understand it very well. They, uh, they're very well informed and, um, you know, uh, they, I, and I also think maybe it's because of this kind of like, uh, relationship like a complex relationship with technology that people who live in rural areas have uh, that they they were able to kind of latch onto it much more so we are off the camera <laughs> yeah that's okay well I still don't understand anything about cryptocurrency to be honest. Yeah, that was my next You know, question. like, I really don't. I have, I kind of get it in a very abstract way. Um, I've never, like, owned Bitcoin, uh, maybe tried to buy it, like, just to see what it's like, but never, like, really um, took it that seriously. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's there. It's obviously uh, uh, going to be like this. Uh, and I, I also think that like uh, all the utopian aspirations of, uh, of uh, tech will, you know, of, of Bitcoin, they will just disappear and will be like left with like uh, banks using the same technology. You know, it, it will just become a part of our daily life. You sent me two of your works. Yeah. Uh, and you said that uh, you always in, intended this movie to be about history, but it's not always seen as such. Yeah, yeah. I'm interested. Why is it like that? Um, because I think, or at least I thought before making this film that like okay, I'm making a, f- a film about uh, kind of a transitory moment, and you know, like un- unless I make this film now, then I'll miss the chance and I think I was right because less people are mining cryptocurrency now um, and that kind of technology again is like really becoming more like part of more mainstream banking and whatnot and you know I, I, I also think that like people don't really associate like films about technology with, with history 
Um, you look at certain things in retrospect, uh, their historical value becomes much more apparent, you know, like, like things from the Industrial Revolution. Uh, maybe something similar is happening now. We lack the kind of documentation. All the documentation is explanatory. Mm. Uh, it's never about kind of like looking at, at, at the process, looking at the labor involved. So, you know, if, if it disappears, also the opportunity to document it in that way also disappears. And, um, yeah, I, I really thought that, like, okay, like, even if the film, even if the historical context is not seen right now, maybe, like, 20 years, 30 years, maybe way longer later, it will have a... Um, a different kind of value. Um, that's something that I always try to think about, which is, okay, I'm not only filming for the present moment, I'm not only filming for present relevance, but kind of like uh, a comparative relevance of um, trying to assume a longer perspective on things. Because that's also what I enjoy when I watch films. I actually probably watch uh, uh, films that are older more often than I watch contemporary films. Uh, because I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated with, with kind of uh, seeing how things have changed. You know, like I'm, I'm, I'm really fascinated by the ephemerality of the moment that's captured on film and uh, I, I also think it's important to remember that even though they were basically camera tests uh, the very first films were yeah kind of observational documentaries you know like workers leaving the factory arrival of a train and now they contain a completely different kind of uh, viewing pleasure than they had at the moment when they were made. So, yeah, it's, it's something that I, I try to replicate, I suppose. And I, I'm, I'm very much drawn to filming things that uh, I, I know are a bit overlooked and taken for granted and will not be there maybe in a decade. Actually, like to talk about invisibility through my work, uh, you know, the invisibility of the internet, the invisibility of history, the invisibility of certain kinds of labor, uh, and making it present. So I don't like invisible music, I don't like invisible editing, I don't like invisible effects. And all of these things are very present in, uh, in, in film today. Mm. One of my favorite scenes was uh, the one with the bees. Yeah. Where you have this uh, guy with a construction hat <laughs> just checking on the bees and you really hear like a very intense uh, buzz, buzzing. Mm -hmm. And then you have the switch of where the guy actually comes from and what's his job. <laughs> just sitting and watching this... Uh, I don't know, data mining machine or whatever <laughs> it was. I think like in the rural places where the technology is not that dominant or maybe there's no streets or no yeah. uh, infrastructure, the uh, nature is way louder. 
Yeah. And I liked how you kind of uh, juxtaposed both of the sounds. Yeah. Well, I have to say that a lot of the sound is constructed in my film. You know, it's it's done in post-production. I think you will... It's one thing that documentary filmmakers don't talk about that often is that uh, I think all of us really manipulate things through sound and put emphasis through sound. And most of the time, it's just impossible to get that kind of uh, sound on set. So a lot of it were like very, very conscious decisions. But nevertheless, I still want to... Even when I construct something, I want to keep uh, uh, an observational mode, you know. Um, I, I just forego narration because I really want things to kind of speak for themselves, even if I manipulate them, you know, even if I uh, kind of pick the sound. Um, but it's still kind of always from, you know, like the the world of the frame itself. It's always diegetic, it's always coming from within. And, and yeah, I mean, I, I, it's another things that I just associate with just pleasures of cinema, which is just like, okay, like just looking and listening to things. Um, I'm also quite surprised how many uh, how many different sources emphasize that the film has no music, which is, I think it's quite natural not to include music in a film like this, but then I've started paying attention to a lot of other films and I realized, oh yeah, like almost everyone uses music to emphasize different kinds of emotions and I don't like that at all. So for me, it's quite natural that a film shouldn't have music because Either the music is used for some kind of a soppy effect or it's um, or it takes away from the actual quality of the music. You know, I, I, it's it just a very... The use of music in cinema, I think, needs to be very delicate. And we forget that. Thinking about the content uh, in the very first scene, we see the, I thought it was like one of the strongest scenes as well mm -hmm. in, the, in the pink room and then we see yeah, the yeah. butcher yeah. with the portrait of Stalin Yeah. Uh, and then a small with... TV screen with the robot Sofia talking. <laughs> yeah. It's funny because I did the work about this robot. No way. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I started, uh, yeah, certain research about it. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so at some point, I think in the end, when we already hear like other sounds, she's speaking about how like the Georgian language is like not gendered. Yeah. And how, uh, yeah, there's no he or she, but everyone is they. Basically, yeah. Uh, which, you know, like again, it's like some kind of a very utopic aspiration, but it's a very conservative, very like uh, kind of... Um, I guess a patriarchal society, but also a sexist society. And uh, yeah, one of the questions that I get a lot is that like, oh, you know, like, why didn't you have women minors in the film? And the answer to that is that basically we found one. Uh, she did it on a very small scale and didn't really want to be involved in the film. It's a very like male dominated society. So, you know, I think it's reflected in the film. 
you know, and uh, and it's funny to like people make assumptions like oh it's a non gendered language, as if somehow that could fix the problem, and obviously it doesn't. I feel you even like made it even more explicit by I think placing those male characters in very masculine professions or jobs. Yeah. I don't know. I had the feeling like. In various scenes, we see like very over masculine, uh, don't know, exercises like chopping the meat or hunting or like operating this heavy machine. So, so even like the boys, yeah, yeah, play football or uh, play video games. Yeah, you know, I mean, like, but that that that's the thing. I mean, like, uh, you know, I wouldn't say that the situation is evenly bad in all of Georgia, I think, in, in the larger cities. Uh, at least for the region, you know, at least definitely in all of the Caucasus, like, uh, I think women are freer, so to speak. And there's just more, at least, attempts at equality. But in rural regions, uh, yeah, it's it's a completely patriarchal society. It's very segregated by gender. So you mostly encounter women performing more domestic roles and uh, men doing uh, more work on the outside. Um, on the other hand, it's also not so simple because women are very much involved in labor. It's just labor that's not so visible. Well, I guess like everywhere else, but uh, yeah. Yeah, that's just kind of how it is now. Um, but you know, I mean like, again, this rural town where we lived in Tel Aviv, um, one of the people that helped us out with pre-production was uh, like a trans woman rights activist uh, and she lives there and again like despite the assumptions that you have about rural places these places can still surprise you yeah for sure i thought it was quite uh ironic how you started the movie with this like robot speaking how amazing this land is and like yeah, the yeah. language is so amazing and we can really learn a lot and then you juxtapose it yeah this is not how you you know yeah i think there's like a big uh, disconnection also uh with that that you can just like come and change put a narrative <laughs> western narrative yeah on all these regions and suddenly everything is good yeah 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 and it's it's kind of bothersome to be um, exoticized in one way or another way, you know, which is like uh, either pretending and both of these things from a Western perspective, which is like, ah, you know, like so exotic, kind of like look at these noble savages or the other perspective, which is like, okay, you know, like oh, unwestern and uncivilized, but obviously these, these things, they don't apply. They don't apply to any place. I mean, every place is uh, complex. And uh, these narratives, uh, 
they're imposed everywhere and they oversimplify everything and so somehow all of us end up misunderstanding each other you know and i also see like for example like georgian filmmakers use the same tropes like look at us like we're so exotic or like fetishizing poverty or on, on the other hand pretending that it's some kind of paradise you know like there's just always a lack of complexity and I always think that there's a lack of complexity because people are very keen on um, imposing narratives on the world instead of looking at it. You need some water? No, I'm good, I'm good. Yeah, I can. Are you, do you want some water? Um, no, I'm fine also. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I was wondering uh, if you had the chance to show, uh, or where did you have the chance to show it, show the movie? Uh, everywhere. Now, I mean, we, we premiered in Rotterdam, which was great. Uh, unexpected. In the film festival, right? At the film festival, <laughs> you know, which, which was a, kind of a big deal. Um, Super nice. Yeah, I uh, actually showed it in Poland. Yeah, Millennium Docs Against Gravity in Warsaw. And it was very strange because that film festival, it's the kind of work they choose. It's very journalistic. And the first day I had a very engaged audience, you know, and with a very long Q&A. And not the second day, like, no one stayed for the Q&A. Um, and showed the film in Korea, which was an incredible experience. And Janju, it, uh, the film won a prize there, kind of a critic's choice prize. And for me, that was the most uh, interesting experience, which is like, okay, you know, like you just show it outside of the context of the West. And undeniably there's cultural differences that especially like not, nothing about Georgia was very known to the audience, but they were very engaged. And uh, we had a very interesting Q&A there. Um, where else did they show Was it, it with a translator? With a translator, yeah. And where else, where else did we show it where it was interesting? Yeah. Um, great experience in uh, Slovenia uh, and Serbia. Yeah, also won another prize in Serbia and at Palich. Um, and while well, we were just supposed to have the United States premiere, but that didn't happen because of the coronavirus. But uh, I think people will be able to watch the film online quite soon. In Georgia, it kind of was, didn't have the best reception um, because, you know, the, it, it's very conservative in its film tastes and in who people go to see. And it's a small country, everyone knows everyone, so people just end up going to the movies of their friends, you know. Um, so... I would say that the film was mostly ignored. I mean, like, there were a lot of 
there was a lot of reporting on like all the prizes the film won and the premiere and you know like kind of the the film fund promoting itself but when it actually came to screening the film like they just didn't make an effort <laughs> hmm. yeah yeah that's i think often the case if you make a movie about a place and it doesn't really connect so much to the place itself i don't know well it's i think it's much more because um it just doesn't fit into like the narratives that we as Georgians keep telling ourselves. Which are? You know, um, just very, I don't know, like if it's not so, if, first of all, it has to do with the, with the form of filmmaking that we have embraced, which is very narrative, very character-based, uh, very classic. Um, and then, you know, you, you, you make an observational work and it's impossible to find the main character. Um, people get somehow disinterested, you know, because it just doesn't present uh, things in a kind of a prepackaged way. Then it's a film which... I think says that like okay you know like instead of telling you a story and explaining to you how things are done I'm inviting you to look at things instead and draw up your own conclusions and it's not common practice in Georgian cinema I mean like I, I think that we have some really nice documentary filmmakers right now I mean Salome Jashi she's one of my favorite filmmakers um even her films that are very well respected and incredibly well made uh, still explore things through characters, like latching on to the same people and staying with them till the end. And I just think there's so much more that one can do with cinema than that. Um, so it wasn't surprising, this kind of uh, lukewarm reception. Especially, you know, like, I also think that there's this kind of uh, attitude in Georgia towards film, which is like, you know, like documentary isn't really film because of this kind of association with reporting and uncovering the truth. And I think one of the troubles that we, we had when making the film was that people were very um, wary when they heard that, like, ah, oh, we are documentary filmmakers because they thought we were journalists and we're out there to like fuck them out of something, you know, like cause a scandal. And, you know, when, when they realized it wasn't that, people were generally very cooperative, but we couldn't get access to a few places because people are suspicious. Yeah, I also had this experience uh, when I was uh, working on my graduation work. Uh, yeah. For my bachelor, I was filming in beauty salons right. in Poland, and people were really, um, yeah, scared that you kind of find out something or take something from them in in means of knowledge or yeah. There was a sense of like uh, yeah, discomfort. Discomfort. Yeah, I also think that. Uh, you know, filming in Georgia still allows for a kind of spontaneity that you can't 
get in other places, which is, you know, like when, when, when the encounter is quite spontaneous, which it was in, you know, the scene with the, with the um, cowherds in the mountains. Oh, beautiful. You know, like they, they trust you. They don't mind you filming. And the same, like, you know, like when the cows were being milked in a different scene, we were just also invited there. The shepherds were very open to us filming as well. Um, pe people can be very curious about what you're doing and um, just very eager to help you out in any way they can, uh, which I don't think would be the case with making a film in the West. Uh, I think uh, people would still be more standoffish because they would, I, I think immediately they would think, okay, you know, like, what's the gain of the filmmaker and what's my gain to be filmed in this situation? And when that relationship doesn't exist, it's, it's very easy. What's the language you speak in Georgia? Georgian. Georgian. And I also found like uh, information about Abkhazian language. Abkhazian, yeah. What's that? Um, Abkhazia is basically right now a breakaway region of Georgia. Um, and it's difficult to speak about it. So it's just uh, one, uh, one region which speaks that language? Yeah. Also, there's, um, and it's not related to Georgian. It's a different Caucasian language. Um, Do you know it? No. There's several languages in Georgia that are um, spoken, um, which is, you know, like Swan, Mingrelian, Georgian. Uh, Laz, that I'm not sure about the relationship, and Abkhaz. Um, so for, you know, like a place with only 4 million people living there, it's quite a lot. Also, I have to say that Armenian spoken there and Azeri spoken there and uh, a few other, like, the Bats language, which only has like maybe a thousand speakers left. Um, and it's actually, I mean, like all of the Caucasus was referred to by... Um, Arabs way back when as the mountains of tongues because every mountain had its own language um, and you know even even within Georgian that's there's very stark differences in dialect region by region um, so yeah it, it's interesting but it, it also becomes uh, somewhat dangerous when it gets mixed up with politics especially with Abkhaz because Abkhazia basically, um, well, it's occupied by Russia today, and it's... Uh, so this region is located in the north? It's in the northwest, yeah. Um, so it's so-called South Ossetia. Uh, and, you know, it, it's something that most... Georgians, they're kind of reluctant to speak about in, in, in the way that um, I do, because I think that some of the uh, grievances that those people had with, uh, with Georgia were legitimate, but I also know that 
uh, most of them were sparked. The, the conflict itself was definitely sparked with Russian support. Um, I don't like the tone that Georgia has had um, in its recon reconciliation efforts. I think much more has to be done, but I still believe in reconciliation. Maybe like a big question, if you think uh, this work or your general practice is political. Tough one. Uh, yes, uh, I think so in this, in as much that all um, work is uh, political. But I also think um, that it's important to you know, I mean, I don't think anyone can pretend to have a neutral viewpoint on something, but uh, really to, when making a work, kind of uh, enter, I suppose, a more meditative state, um, when you don't let your uh, preconceptions uh, stop you from filming things that don't fit into your worldview. Yeah. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah, because I think that happens a lot. And I think it's difficult to include things that go against your narrative into your work. But uh, as a filmmaker, that's, that's your responsibility. As an artist, it's also your responsibility. Especially when you know that no matter what you make, it's political. Can you like give an example of one of these things which you included despite? In the harvest? Um, well, I think it's just the fact that like it's, it's not taking the stance of like, ah, Bitcoin mining is bad, you know, it, it's just bad for the environment, but also showing how much effort goes into maintaining these and the relationship that the locals have with it and uh, that it might actually suit them in the short term for survival. Um, which is again, like I think one of the reasons why people think that like I'm very pro-Bitcoin, which I'm not at all. Yeah. It's funny because I would think the opposite. Right. I would think if an artist does a work about it, it's rather to show the critical side of it but that's true that the work was pretty neutral i mean you left an yeah. interpretation to the viewer well i mean again like i actually I, I i don't think uh it's a neutral work i really think that uh you know like i i've really chosen these uh places and people and things to show that um start to speak for themselves, especially in the bigger picture, which doesn't happen often in films, um, I think, you know, like you, from the beginning, usually you're, you're already told what to think and what to expect and what the film is about and kind of this uh, almost like uh, cowboy westerns narrative of the good guys and the bad guys and you know like things are never that simple actually one of the things that 
people don't like about the film, I've encountered it quite often, is that there's no one speaking and telling them what, you know, like, what's going on. And, but that's just how people exist. I mean, like, I think most of us, when we're working, we don't talk about our work. We talk about something else. We always want to be somewhere else. Uh, and, you know, dialogue is kind of a means of escape. And I, I wanted to include that in the film because it also brings in the rest of the world into it. Yeah, I'm curious uh, if you can uh, talk a bit about your next work, which I already had the pleasure yeah. to see, <laughs> which is super uh, amazing, but very disturbing also. Right. Uh, well, it's called Ozymandias. It's, the title is from a Percy Shelley poem. And I, I think it's a film about statues. You know, I think it's a film about uh, the presence of uh, history and, and the invisibility of history mm, through statues and monuments. I mean, specifically, they're about statues to Stalin. Uh, but I really just wanted to explore that topic and the presence of these statues today. Again, not by constructing a narrative around like Stalinism in Georgia today or, you know, like kind of these cliches of the old and the new, but really just to kind of like uh, go to these places where the statues still remain and look at them and learn something from that. Um, yeah, and I don't know how much else I can say about the film at the moment because I'm still figuring it out. Especially in the situation now that right that we cannot travel yeah because right now i was supposed to be making sound for this film as well but uh, i'm stuck here without the possibility to do that where can people see the harvest um it can be seen on the website of uh, the international film festival of rotterdam i think it's open for streaming and i don't know i think it costs maybe four euros to see it and last but not least, I wanted to know your favorite Georgian recipe. Yeah, which is, uh, it's, it's a funny question because I'm not a very good cook. I have to look up recipes usually, but uh, when I'm pressed to make something Georgian, I usually make baje, which is this um, kind of, uh, usually it's like chicken or some kind of poultry in walnut sauce. Um, and I actually just, I, I have the recipe written down. Nice, you can send it to me. Although I don't eat meat, but maybe I can. Yeah, but here's the thing. So I, you can, I, uh, when I have vegetarian guests over, when I'm cooking for vegetarian friends, I substitute it with uh, fried cauliflower. And nice. it goes quite well. And actually, it's quite, um, quite a long recipe. And it takes a while of preparation. Is it something you eat for a specific uh, day in the year? Or? No, but it's quite common around New Year's, I think. Um, not for any specific association with uh, New Year's either. <laughs> Thank you so much for Thank you. on this sunny now day. <laughs> Thank you. You are listening to Kitchen Conversations. 
To find Misha's favorite Georgian recipe, as well as the link to his work, The Harvest, please see the show notes. Hope you enjoyed this episode, and till next time!